Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 359, Charles is at home. First of all, I have another couple of independent podcasts to bring to your attention, so you can go and have a listen to them if you like. They are by Roberto Toro and Brendan Foster, and there are two for you. Firstly, there is Roberto's The History of Sackett Vale of Georgia, which I'm pretty confident I've mispronounced, a podcast about the country of Georgia, basically, in the proud history of tradition of which I am part. Then Roberto and Brendan together have teamed up to produce the Tsar Power podcast, ranking the Russian Tsars from Rorik to Putin in the proud Rex Factor tradition. Both, of course, about fascinating and topical parts of the world, so check them out. And before I start let me remind you of the eternal verity of life that a gift of membership of the History of England makes the perfect Christmas present and is as easy as dropping off a log. All you need to do is go to the website thehistoryofengland.co.uk and you will see there a link to directions on how to do it and it's simple. So then, back to the knitting. In June 1629, Peter Paul Rubens came to England for my sins, I thought Rubens was now but a painter and decorator. I did not realise he was also a very active and influential diplomat for the Spanish Habsburgs. Did you know that? I'm told one of his objectives was to end the war with the Dutch, a running sore, of course, that had been draining the Habsburgs of treasure for decades now. Now, it appears that Rubens did not see England as a cipher. He had a plan, and England was critical to it. He came to England seeking peace between Spain and England because he believed that with that, the Dutch would be forced to come to terms. This is evidence that geniuses of the pictorial arts are no better at predicting the future than anyone else. 
I feel like telling you a bit more about Rubens' visit. It's not why I bring him up, as I have to say. It's definitely a digression. But I thought it might be amusing to you, Rubens being so famous and all that. Charles sent one of his warships to pick him up. The Habsburg name opens doors. But Charles also had a passion for art, and I guess would have been very excited to meet Rubens too. He had commissioned a self-portrait from Rubens, hung it outside his bedchamber at Whitehall, and looked at it every day, apparently. Rubens and Charles met twice at Greenwich Palace, but apparently did not discuss the banqueting hall commission that would come. They stuck instead to diplomacy. Rubens was convinced that Charles really wanted peace, and he wrote home to Olivares that he was sure in my heart that Charles would prefer a simple friendship with Spain a thousand times more than all the offers of France, and that he curses the day when the Palatinate came to his attention. The diplomacy went okay. They managed to produce a written proposal from Charles, which was apparently as rare as finding hen's teeth. Rubens presented Charles with a painting entitled Peace and War, celebrating Charles as a peaceful king just like his good old dad. Rubens would be back again in March 1630, and in the banqueting house whose ceilings he was to paint, Rubens was knighted by Charles. Despite this initial success with the king in 1629, Rubens wasn't actually that hopeful of ultimate success. He wrote home to Olivares about the complexities of working in England. He reported himself very apprehensive as to the instability of the English government. He reported they changed their minds all the time, and interestingly that whereas in other courts negotiations begin with the ministers and finish with the royal word and signature, here they begin with the king and end with the ministers. Now, it is certainly true that English foreign policy wavers a bit over the next ten years, though given they had no iron fist in their velvet-gloved diplomacy, it's all pretty inconclusive. But more interesting here, I think, is the light that it sheds on Charles's style and skill in governing during personal rule. I have to say, as with most things to do with the English Revolution and the British Civil Wars in general, particularly related to Charles and Cromers, though, there are more available conflicting opinions than flies and, well, there are lots of opinions, is all I'm saying. Charles Carlton paints a picture of an essentially idle, arm's-length king, much given to thumping the table, setting up subcommittees, then naffing off to do a bit of hunting without the attention to detail and persistence that gets things done. A bit of a chip-off-the-old block, basically. Richard Cust, on the other hand, paints a picture of a king very directly involved, conscientious and firm in decision-making. Conrad Russell doesn't agree with this necessarily and takes issue with the traditional idea that Charles was incapable of taking advice, but his view is that despite taking advice, Charles never compromised on the big strategy, the ultimate objective, only on tactics about how to get there. Sometimes he might appear to compromise, but only on tactics, and therefore raise expectations he might actually cut a deal, but he very rarely did. So far, I have to say, the spirit of compromise seems to have been pretty weak in this one. However, the picture that emerges in the views of most historians is something of a princely swat. We know that Charles very much valued structure, self-control, and he structured his working day rigidly, a day in which prayer and working on state papers figured highly. 
He read papers extensively and carefully, annotating them in longhand and usually giving very clear instructions. He seems to have listened to advice, although it's not clear he could be persuaded into action that did not meet with his conscience, as Conrad Russell has noted, as far as objective and negotiations were concerned, it was more a matter of deciding what his conscience could accept, rather than trying to find a political solution, and then discussing ways and means to get to that point. More than one historian has seen in this a basic lack of confidence, that he would insist he be followed and obeyed in his decisions in the smallest thing, because he needed complete compliance and outward displays of loyalty to reassure himself that he was in the right, that he was doing the right thing. However, there was certainly debate in council. Charles did not surround himself with yes-men, and his councillors did not hesitate to disagree, and disagree strongly on occasion. There was one particular occasion during the forced loan when Manchester and Conway actually amend a letter from the king without royal permission. So again, this is no tyranny, with people creeping around terrified to speak out. How much trust his councillors had in his abilities to make good decisions and how far they felt they could sway him on the essentials is though much more doubtful. So Russell again argues that while councillors could gain access to their king, access did not necessarily bring influence. And if councillors could not influence essential policy, well, what was the point of being there at all might be a reasonable question. Certainly in Scotland, many privy councillors just stopped turning up for meetings. But in terms of hard work, Charles was very present. And to take you back to Rubens' quote, maybe too much. Charles was at the start of everything and owned every aspect of strategy. Ministers were expected then to do as they were instructed. This will be a particular problem in Scotland again when Charles gets involved in religious reform. He accepted very little advice from ministers on the spot and expected them to carry out his instructions with disastrous results, as it happens, and the process itself was deeply motivating for ministers. It was very different in Ireland, where Charles would delegate control to a large degree to Wentworth, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Charles was rigorous in separating the business of government from life in his personal household, or as rigorous as he could be. They were entire different things in his mind. He even showed a steely resolve not to allow Henrietta Maria to exercise influence as far as policy was concerned, or at least not until the war broke out. So we might applaud him, I guess, for a good work-life balance, whatever that means. In a way, it is a bit difficult to describe exactly what it means because the nobility that surrounded him at court could be both his companions and his advisers. The outward-facing elements of his court, chamber, presence chamber, for example, will be where he conducted business with ambassadors and petitioners. But he tried to make a distinction between the people he employed in his household and those he dealt with for business and government. So Weston and other ministers of the Privy Council were about governmental business. The Marquis of Hamilton, Earl of Carlisle, these were essentially courtiers. Not very sure how useful all of this is, I must say, because the lines were frequently crossed. Hamilton would become his chief representative in Scotland. Both he and Carlyle went on diplomatic missions. However, Charles maintained a distinction as far as he could. Ministers were for business, courtiers were for social life, and his ministers frequently felt excluded from the social life bit. As far as the business of government was concerned, 
The change from his early years in one respect was absolutely remarkable. There would be no favourite to replace Buckingham. That was not the way Charles would do business anymore. The most important and I suppose sort of chief minister until his death in 1635 was the treasurer Richard Weston, despite the fact that the Queen heartily disliked him because she considered him to be as mean as mouse shit. But he never even vaguely approached the level of autonomy, influence and dominance of patronage that Buckingham had achieved. When Weston hoped and expected to become Lord Admiral, for example, Charles did not make the appointment at all. There was no repeat of the situation where to get to the king you needed to go through a particular minister. Now, William Lord was also extremely influential with Charles, but in the main, Charles kept him restricted to church policy. So again, there's no one dominant voice. In other ways, it was also clear that Charles was the driver of the bus. He regularly attended Privy Council meetings in person. His Privy Council amounted to 42 people, which is clearly no place to make any decisions other than getting camels. But... In reality, the vast majority of these positions were honorific and regular attendance was about 12 people, much more manageable. Councils met regularly on Wednesdays and Fridays, usually in a council chamber close to the King's bedchamber in Whitehall Palace, though sometimes in the Palace of Westminster in Star Chamber. After 1635, the weight of business meant that they met on Sundays too. It is difficult to know exactly how often Charles went, But in the late 1630s, just for a couple of years, for example, he may have been up to 40 a year. And if that's typical, so at the time, it meant he was going to roughly 40% of meetings. When key issues were discussed, he might even take the chair and lead a discussion. On occasion, he even brought forward proposals himself, and they could be pretty detailed. So, for example, in 1635, he bought a proposal for taxing local maltsters. I'm getting flashes of Philip II here, labouring away all hours, deep in the Escorial Palace, checking and annotating everything from all over the world. Charles kept discussions in his English Privy Council, strictly to English affairs, and then he held a separate council for Scottish affairs. Now, in some ways, this was helpful, because it maintained a focus. But in other ways, it really wasn't. His English advisers had no information to help when the Scottish crisis blew up and the Scottish councillors at Whitehall in his council were pretty remote from real events happening at Edinburgh and Scotland. Finally, as far as patronage was concerned, it's a little bit difficult to tell how far Charles was involved at every level at every appointment, but at some point he would know about most appointments. Generally, he relied on courtiers to bring forward petitions recognising that he often lacked the expertise to identify the right person in specialist areas. But again, there was absolutely no resumption of that system where getting your petition sorted meant going through the great duke who would shove it in front of the king's nose for ten seconds. Requests to grants and jobs now went through proper bureaucratic channels and the king would be involved. And for senior appointments, well, Charles's fingers were all over those. You have to say, or I am finding myself saying, that all of this sounds thoroughly organised and thoroughly above board and all rather impressive. If we're looking for a corrupt tyrant type, it doesn't seem to be here. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Nor, I am forced to say, do I think you will find it in the king's household. Now, obviously I'm drawing away very much from my high politics here, but the whole court thing is rather fascinating. Which is what we're going to talk about now. Charles at home. Slippers, pipe, Ovaltine, the works. As a model for a royal court, let us firstly take James's, which Charles would of course have known very well indeed. As you may remember, James's court was a bit of a bore. James had a hail-fellow-well-met sort of approach to his courtiers. If he liked you especially, he might walk round informally with you, his hand on your shoulder, that sort of thing. Touchy-feely. He liked parties. He liked to drink or sex. He liked a bit of dancing, plays, masks. There was a lot of politicking going on in James's court, some of it, as we've heard, pretty scandalous. James probably hoped and believed, actually, that his court was as he intended it to be, the font of wisdom and an exemplar of culture and behaviour. But from the outside, from the country looking in, it really wasn't. In the public mind, it was beset with favourites, scandals, Catholics in high places, it appeared to leak money. And indeed, it did leak money. Charles was not a fan of his father's ways and court. The lack of control, the informality, the factions and politicking, all of this brought Charles out in spots and made him have to lie down in a dark room with a flannel on his brow. Now that he was in charge, using the historical analysis of the stranglers, things had better change. And they did. Charles was very open about this. He wanted his court to be, as he felt a monarch should also be, the image of of virtue to his subjects. So he issued a proclamation early in his reign. In the reign of our dear father, we saw much disorder in and about his household. Finding this to bring much dishonour to our house, we have resolved the reformation thereof. So that's quite openly critical of his dad. But I suppose everyone was thinking it, so why not say it and crush the serpent's head? Now, Charles's gloss was that he was going to return to the days of good old Queen Bess and reinstate the rules and maxims of the late Queen Elizabeth. This had about as much truth as his frequent and frequently dodgy assertion that he was making no innovations in religion and was simply maintaining the church according to the way it was under the Elizabethan settlement. But he'd had enough truth about it to make it not be absurd, although it wasn't strictly accurate. But just as in the church, Charles brought his own interpretation and imposed strict rules where before there'd been latitude. So, from 1630 in particular, there are strict regulations about the way his court would be run. But the claim did have a certain truth. Elizabeth had also worked hard to maintain the morality and behaviour of her courtiers, and that, 
had very definitely not been one of James's strengths. In addition to Elizabeth and James, Charles had a couple of other examples to follow from the centres of European culture, France and Spain. In the French model, as in Elizabeth's court, the monarch lived life in the public gaze, surrounded by a densely populated court, inclusive, open, where the king was constantly available to his leading subjects and in the public eye. The Spanish court, on the other hand, was very different. And of course, Charles had seen it firsthand when, you know, he went there in total secrecy, heavily disguised. And he had liked what he saw. Now, the Spanish court was a very closed world. The monarch was hidden away behind levels of strict protocol and access carefully allocated. Business and events were conducted with old world style and gravitas, very much in the spirit of the nobility. It was designed to protect the mystique of kingship, a sense of almost religious reverence for the king, order, a high moral tone and permanence. Now these are things at the very heart of Charles's life and his political philosophy. He represented in his view the real liberty that came with order, hierarchy, stability and the responsibility of society's leaders towards their people and, vice versa, the people's responsibility to obey. To emphasise all of these, hierarchy, order, reverence for the king, access to the king's person was now tightly controlled. His privy chamber was available only to noblemen, councillors and gentlemen of the privy chamber. His bedchamber suite, where he took most of his meals, was accessible only to the princes of the blood and the grooms who worked there. The Venetian ambassador noted, The king observes a rule of great decorum. The nobles do not enter his apartments in confusion as heretofore, but each rank has its appointed place. The king has also drawn up rules for himself, dividing the day from his very early rising for prayers, exercises, business, eating and sleeping. So all the huddly-buddly was swept away. The night marshal was also ordered to make sure that no tippling houses, shacks or tents were erected along the palace walls. Now this was a major disappointment to the Dell boys of the day, since these big royal residences were stuffed full of rich courtiers, their hormones and lusts, and their servants, and so attracted a cloud of hangers-on, dodgy commercial offers and all sorts. But now orders were given to remove all of them from the royal site, all the rogues, beggars, idle and loose people, which probably would have called time on podcasters as well. We are generally an idle and loose lot. There was also a special court of the royal palace, able to arrest and condemn transgressors and told to hang the guilty outside the main gate to make the point clear to all. The king's dinner was served at ten with great ceremony, food presented to him and his family on bended knee. All so elaborate that some wag noted the king must never have actually managed to eat his food warm. This was a world he could control and order as he wished. He saw it all as a sort of household, a little commonwealth, an expression of the great chain of being where everyone knew their place and their function, all worked for the general good under his fatherly leadership as head of the household. You know, just like the household of a good, honest 
husbandman only, tadge bigger. It may well be that he felt that if his court was well-regulated, happy and at peace, then surely so must the country be. This would prove to be an inaccurate expectation, I am very sorry to say. The thing is that Charles was very much a family man. With the departure of Buckingham from the scene, his marriage was reduced to the more traditional number of two and against the original form, actually really began to flourish. It became clear that Charles and Henrietta Maria really had something in common and most thoroughly enjoyed each other's company. And despite the enormous difficulties of developing any kind of personal relationship when everyone was looking at your smallest move, they loved each other and for 12 years or so would enjoy a thoroughly life-enhancing family life. Now that is something you can't say about every monarch. So if we're looking to distribute medals, there's one for Charles and one for Henrietta Maria. Not sure if we are in the business of distributing medals, but I've just done it. While we're on the topic of family, this is probably the time to mention that when the birds and the bees love each other very much, children sometimes follow, if I'm not mixing my metaphors. In May 1629, Henrietta and Charles suffered the pain of an infant death, the baby dying on the same day. But after that, they were blessed with a succession of children. Although there's never really an excuse to word, use the word in public, I think the word fecund is appropriate here. Charles was born just a year later, 29th of May 1630, and was the most significant since it meant that Elizabeth of the Rhone Palatinate was no longer heir to England's throne. Note bene, ladies and gentlemen, note bene. Then we have Mary, 1631, James, 1633, oh dearie me. And then three children who died either very young or on the day of their birth in 1635, 7 and 9. And then Henry, Duke of Gloucester in 1642 and Henrietta in 1644 before the Civil War drove the birds and the bees away. The privy chambers of Charles's court therefore became a closed private world which he could centre around his family life. He and Henrietta Maria shared a lot of interests and had joint friendships. So, Thomas and Alethea Howard, for example, the Earl and Countess of Arundel, shared their interest in art. The Earl was one of the greatest collectors of art, who would search the continent for arresting pieces to share with the King. Henrietta, as we've heard, had developed a friendship with Lucy, Countess of Carlisle and others. Henrietta loved the masks which were regularly played in court. She had a thoroughly nice time lavishing her patronage on the six royal palaces allocated to her. In addition to which, Charles bought a new one for her, Wimbledon Manor, on the basis of the principle of packing suitcases, which, as I am sure you know, is that there is always room for one more. And anyway, having only six houses is such a bore, darling. There were great rebuilding projects at her palaces of Somerset House and Greenwich Palace in particular. They were remodelled and refurnished with great elegance and luxury. Charles and Henrietta Maria were very rarely apart. She even went hunting with him too. And in 1632, when she had an attack of smallpox, Charles could not be prized away from her side for love nor money. It is a period where Henrietta Maria would say with joy that she was the happiest of women. This conjugal harmony was obvious and noticed by people who were graced with access to this world, 
and reflected it onto the kingdom as a whole. One courtier wrote to John Cook, the hard-working Secretary of State, Never was their private family more at full peace and tranquillity than in this glorious kingdom, for we hear not of the least disorder therein from one end to the other. Back to Rubens again, though. When he visited Charles, he wrote back to the King of Spain about what he'd seen at Charles's court and mentioned, All the leading nobles here live on a most sumptuous scale and spend money lavishly. Splendour and liberality are the first considerations of this court, which must have been heartwarming to see when you were out digging mangles on a dark, cold and wet October in Suffolk, and on the contrast between the inner life and how it appeared to the rest of the world, more at another time. But as far as Rubens was concerned, given he was acquainted with the court of Spain, which really was full of glitter and rigid formality, this was compliment indeed. There was a bit of a kicker in Rubens' letter home, though, when he wrote, In this place I find none of the crudeness that one might expect from a place so remote from Italian elegance to which one might express sympathy for a place that's so far from the triumphs of English culture like warm beer, football, maybe something a bit cleverer, ideas on a postcard, or possibly just a collective eye roll or major tut would be appropriate at this point. Now, all of this opulence did come at a bit of a price. He was a rather bigger household than your typical Suffolk husbandman. Below stairs, doing all the services were about 300 people above stairs, doing all the grand, hanging around in chambers, serving the king and looking opulent, were twice that number. The numbers required to support the royal family are rather remarkable. So, 58 gentlemen pensioners attended on the king personally, for example. Come on, someone must have some matches. There were 263 members of the royal stables. The queen's household was additional as well, with 172 servants, and then by the end of the decade, 200 more in each of the households of the royal kiddiewinks. There were, of course, multiple royal palaces, Whitehall, St James, Richmond, Hampton Court, Windsor, Tibbles, and more. I think non-such by this stage was becoming a bit of a mess. There were far too many. Henry VIII's fault, really. I think he amassed 55, did he not? I once read. read. So the royal household was enormous. In all, at any one time, royal households supported between 1,800 and 2,600 people, which made it, in point of fact, the seventh or eighth largest community in the kingdom. It cost about £260,000 a year, which amounted to 40% of the total royal income in 1635. Part of that household was often on the move, from moving around royal residences, but also to visiting hapless courtiers for a bit of a freebie, in the same way James and Elizabeth frequently did. Now, the idea of moving around the country, as I'm sure you know, was a well-worn aspect of monarchy. The progress was a way not only of having a bit of fun at the expense of your richer subjects, spending your time hunting, it was also a way of showing yourself to your people, and getting an idea of the flavour of their lives and what worried them. Now, for sure, Charles loved a freebie, and Charles loved hunting. He was apparently a good judge of a horse, a fine rider, and pretty wild, too, getting himself into all kinds of scrapes. 
In his love of hunting, he was just like his old dad, for whom, of course, it was almost a religion. However, it has been argued that Charles was not so keen on the showing himself to his people bit. It's not that he did not include official visits as he went. There was one in 1634, for example, in Nottingham, and in 1637 to Northampton. But they became rarer and rarer. When the royal party was in town for the hunt, it was more likely to just cause a lot of trouble with the locals as the party swarmed over the landscape, stripping it clean of lodging and supplies, and then moving on. The king and unseen mystery hidden somewhere in the middle of it all. This was probably because Charles was not a fan of hurly-burly and pressing the flesh. He didn't have that populist facility and confidence his father and Queen Elizabeth had. The ritual of his court was much more to his taste. It gave everything structure, order, control, distance and safety. Now, I believe we have talked about the magnificent display of royal courts before, many times over the years, I would guess. I remember particularly how well the Tudors from Henry VII onward held a dear the importance of presenting a message of their majesty, power and magnificence to their people. Charles, on the other hand, has been accused by one historian of communicating very poorly with his subjects. But Charles did believe in the importance of art and symbols to communicate the values of his kingship and its meaning. So, here we go on one of my specialist subjects, not. I would like to thank Richard Cust and Charles Carlton for their knowledge, which I am stealing. On the first bit of it, it seems generally agreed and common knowledge that Charles was an art collector of some genius. It was a passion from an early age. He acquired a decent collection from his older brother. He was a friend to other passionate and expert collectors, such as Thomas Howard, who had a collection of 779 paintings. The extent of this passion rather frustrated his ministers at time. Dorchester went searching for his master with a bundle of correspondence, desperate to discuss foreign policy opportunities released by Gustavus Adolphus' victories. He grumpily recorded that he finally found the king in the Whitehall Palace picture gallery. In the midst of his antique pictures, no less seriously employed, placing and removing his emperor's heads and putting them in order. He had an eye for it. At the age of 20, he sent a commission back to Rubens because he could see it was painted not by the great man, but by one of his apprentices. And surefire, the master fessed up, agreed he was correct, and apologised. He was acquainted with the Spanish School of Art from his travels and in 1628 acquired a massive collection from the Duke of Mantua. I'm told that when a batch of new paintings came in, he had all the labels removed so that he could guess the artist to test his knowledge properly. His patronage of Van Dyck is probably one of the best-known things about his reign, other than, you know, the other thing. By the time he died, his art collection numbered over 1,700 paintings. That's a sh super short summary of the rich topic that fills many TV programmes of fabulous paintings. In addition... While the glory days of England's Renaissance theatre was now fading, both he and Henrietta Maria adored the mask, which you will hopefully remember are a very formulaic pageant involving painted backdrops, music and dancing, all integrated. And he was an enthusiastic patron of architects such as Inigo Jones and the new, formal, austere Palladian styles.
In all of this, Charles was both modern and talented. His artistic tastes brought the English court into the mainstream of European culture. In addition, he was very aware of the importance of art as a medium to deliver messages. Art and masks should enlighten and civilise, as well as being good to look at. So he was very aware that he might communicate a message, and his art and masks were laden with symbols. Van Dyck's paintings in particular had been identifying Charles as personifying the peacemaker, the unifier of England and Scotland, an image of wisdom and justice. He's represented as father of his people. In one painting, he's seated in the middle of a family group, calmly looking at the viewer. In another, La Chasse, he was represented as resting after the hunt, the ultimate courtier, elegant, well-dressed, in command of his surroundings and of himself. The message, I'm told, is of a king who could rule the kingdom because he had learned to rule himself and subdue his own passions, a sort of philosopher-king type thing. The mask was also deeply symbolic, although masks, of course, were very much restricted to the closed world of the court of the king and his courtiers. They were also very much about the monarch. They stressed the perfection of Charles and Henrietta Maria's love. They celebrated the government's policies and proclaimed the authority and majesty of the king. They generally began with an anti-mask, in which a world of order and harmony was plunged into chaos by evil influences and vice. Sometimes these were represented by popular rebellion, sometimes quite specifically, referencing the likes of John Cade and Robert Kett. Then the virtues would arrive, led by the king and queen, and bringing harmony and understanding to remove the chaos of the vulgar populace and populist. So there, then, is a very superfast and sadly shallow presentation of the home life of Charles I. I could have taken so much longer. It's a fascinating topic. Now, look, there are quite a few positives here. I think you will agree. A family man with a close relationship with his wife and children, a man of tight self-control, who managed to keep his work and private life surprisingly separate. We'll talk in another episode about the impact of his Queen's Catholicism and the very visible presence of his wife's Catholic household, but the evidence seems to be that his wife's support for Catholicism had little impact on his policy, at least. Charles enforced taxation on recusants far harder than his father, for example. He was a deeply cultured man, very much at the forefront of a cosmopolitan European culture who regulated his household and kept a firm rein on their behaviour and morality, so much so that a Puritan, who would later be very much an opponent to the diarist Lucy Hutchinson, felt his court edicts showed a king temperate, chaste and serious. He was a man who believed deeply in his role as father of his people, and he took that responsibility very seriously. And yet, there were factors here that would not play out well as England moved towards crisis. This was a closed world, defined, regulated by the king. All these masks and glorious images came from his own eyes and from the court, and was largely seen only by his eyes and those of his courtiers, and was therefore a self-reassuring and self-perpetuating image. There was no feedback mechanism here telling Charles whether this was or was not the view of him held by the mass of his subjects, who lived outside this golden circle. Although 
he understood the power of symbols and images. He took precious little opportunity to make sure that they were communicated widely outside the golden circle. Masks were almost never seen outside the court, the grand images rarely either, and he steadily withdrew from the traditional method monarchs had had of communicating these values, the royal progress, which began to be increasingly family and court occasions with little or no contact with the local communities through which they passed. Charles actually was a big fan of the Order of the Garter and he instituted a big progress every year. Now that could have been a perfect public celebration such as the Tudors often had. But typically, under Charles, it was held within Windsor Castle. The public were kept well away. In addition, many of the images of the anti-mask seemed to represent the public world outside the court as antagonistic, dangerous, threatening the chaos of crude and popular opinion, symbolised by vice and excess, to be subdued and reformed by their wise and beneficent king and queen. Almost a siege mentality inside the court. As far as the country was concerned, for many the court could look quite alien, a grand, distant, inaccessible world, espousing new austere architectures and cultures alien to the display, excess, populism and exuberant architecture of the Tudors. Charles had clearly understood the importance of the public sphere in politics and communication in 1629, and he'd used it quite effectively, as evidenced by his proclamation in March 1629, justifying his dissolution of Parliament. But it is notable that this was the last royal proclamation of that type until 1639, and since Parliament had been banished, there was no great pressure on him to communicate to his subjects about the thinking behind his policies, nor was there any feedback mechanism as to what his subjects thought and felt about them. Ironically, it might be that his apparent greatest triumph over the institution he'd begun to see as an enemy held within it his greatest danger and the greatest danger to his reign. Because Charles was increasingly living in a cut-off world where all the feedback reinforced his self-image, belief and values, filled him with a confidence in his own abilities and success as a monarch, a view which was not necessarily shared by his subjects, or at very least a set of values and policies that needed to be properly communicated to his subjects. When the crisis came, it would test the strength of the castle that he'd built in the air. Right then, that's all folks. Next time, last one before Criggy, will be all about Charles abroad rather than at home. How the long arm of English policy could stretch to influence his neighbours or not. Before I leave, let me remind you of the eternal verity of life that a gift of membership of the History of England makes the perfect Christmas present and is as easy as dropping off a log. All you need to do is go to the website thehistoryofengland.co.uk and you will see there a link to directions on how to do it and it's simple and you get access to over a hundred hours of Shedcasts. Until next time then everyone, all the festive fun and laughter of the season to you and your family. Good luck and have a great week.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.